Hello, welcome to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You are listening to a podcast all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Meg, your host, and I'm a staff writer at The Athletic covering the NWSL and the U.S. Women's National Team. So definitely a a different episode for you today because this is actually a bonus episode. Allie Wagner is on the pod to help us preview She Believes Cup so that way you know exactly what you should be watching for ahead of this tournament. The games start on February 18th. We've got three game days. We've got Brazil... Argentina and Canada in the country, uh, every single game in Orlando. Ali Wagner is going to be the analyst on every single U.S. Women's National Team game, and it is always great to pick her brain about how she is watching, how she is trying to think about this team, and to basically, you know, actually figure out if we're on the same page or not. So without any further ado, here is Ali. First thing that I wanted to talk to you about, about She Believes Cup, is that you know, when you when you think about the history of this tournament, we're in the sixth edition now. The opponents that we're used to seeing are the Englands, the Spains, France, Germany, like big kind of European teams. Like we used to kind of have a joke about it in the NWSL office that this was like the winter prestige tournament and that tournament of nations was just like pure chaos, summer fun, right? Um, <laughs> but now, you know, we're, we're getting teams that we're not necessarily used to seeing in this tournament. So how do we put the results for the U.S. Women's National Team in the right context with this version of She Believes Cup? Yeah, that's. I think that's a great question, actually, because it's twofold, right? So you look at where we are in the season, if you will, so where the team is in their development, it's earlier than it ever has been before. And then that that other aspect of the, the strength of the opponent is not at the level consistently through the tournament that it has been. So I think you got to take it case by case. And... Brazil, when I go into this tournament, I think Brazil is going to be the the, the toughest challenge for the U.S. And I, I think they they actually could pose some problems. You know, you look at the way the U.S. typically is played. Teams they struggle with are teams that, that can get expansive on them. Teams that can match their physicality. Teams that can match their pace. And, and I think Brazil checks those boxes. I do think they have still some weak links in the back line that the U.S. will, will look to get after. You know, and I don't think that Brazil is on the on the same level as the United States yet. I think that the U.S. benefited massively by by actually the COVID year, which is sad to say. But I think of all the teams, the U.S. probably comes out ahead mm-hmm. uh, if we're talking about marginal gains, right, and or relative gains. So I think the U.S. is in a really good position when you look at Canada. Not having those big name players is it's a massive blow. I mean, they to be fair, they they didn't even compete that well, you know, in the Concacaf. those qualifiers that we had Mm -hmm. the u.s again was just on a different level and and i expect the same thing from that match and then argentina uh, you know we just got off the a call with with them and they haven't been together for a year and a half right you know together on friday and they're gonna have basically what is that five days before their first game so what do we expect from a nation you know that that has struggled historically in these big ties already so, so yeah, I don't know that we're going to learn a ton, but, but the reality is it's not Vlaco's the one that's got to learn from this tournament, mm-hmm. right? So he's got to set certain standards for certain players because these, these are the moments that are going to teach him who should be in or out going into the Olympics. Yeah. There's not going to be for then. Yeah. I mean, that perfectly leads into the next question. And, and this is a conversation that I've had, you know, Heather O'Reilly was on the, the podcast and Steph Young was on the podcast and talking to folks and just being like, you know, we're seeing one piece of the puzzle, right? And how do we interpret 
the the results of games like this where you know these are data points in a much larger context in in this kind of like Vlaco experiment right of building a national team and he's got so much more data so how do we how do we try to mimic how he's perhaps evaluating some of those performances if he's setting a standard for Crystal Dunn potentially even playing multiple roles within this team now like how do we how do we kind of maybe try to tap into where his brain is at right now? I, I honestly don't even think any of us can scratch that surface that when I spoke to him, you know, we, I hit him up during COVID. Hey, I want to learn about some things. And the amount of data, as you said, that they have on every player is insane. Mm-hmm. The, the, the detail that goes into every single role on the pitch at any given moment is insane. So when we look at it as fans and hopefully as analysts, as we claim to be, which, you know, <laughs> we can all debate that the reality of that, but what they we're not even, we're not even, we're the, we're the tip of the iceberg. Right. Mm-hmm. And I hope we're maybe a layer below he's, he's looking down at the core and I think seeing a lot of things that, that we don't understand and how people want to look at things and isolate it done being left back done as a 10 you know, are we playing a false nine? Are we playing an out and out striker, right? You want to isolate it. But the reality is, is there's a relationship that in, within every position, every role, every player, there's so many relationships and how they impact each other, how, how they coalesce, how they actually, you know, uh, manipulate the defense that, that is another layer that a lot of people maybe don't consider. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to factor in, uh, did this player take two steps this way? Did this player take three steps this way? You know, that, that those are checking off boxes for Vlaco. So we're not even going to get there. We don't, we don't really know what he wants for, I think in, in that much detail, but I think we can understand the players. I think we can understand the relationships. Right. So that leads into what I was hoping to talk to, to you about just in terms of looking at even the past 10 years, maybe of the national team, the versatility of players feels like it is so far above and beyond. Like I remember, you know, definitely having debates about whether Lauren Holiday was being played in the right position or not. But I feel like we are in a completely different stratosphere of outside backs being able to play center back, being able to play anywhere on the wing, right? Like you can slot players in in so many different positions. We're looking at changing roles for Mitch Purse, right? Like there's just so many more layers of it. And are you seeing how that versatility might a make us harder to to understand where this team is at in terms of like a roster projection, but also just the progression of the game. You know, it's interesting that it's actually interesting that you view it that way, because I think I, I look at it in, in a, I look at it a little bit differently, which is, that I think we actually have more specialists, mm. right? But but we have specialists that because of rotations that occur naturally on the field, you automatically learn kind of the role of another position, right? Yeah. So you're taking a 10 and, and now the 10 is pulling wide, suddenly they became a winger at, because maybe Dunn stayed home in that moment, right? And Rapino's inside and look, she's playing as a 10 or now she's an inside forward. And, and so Rapino's an out and out winger, right? She's, she owns that spot, but very comfortable existing in another spot on the field. And so that's where I think the evolution has come in for, for the, for the women's game for the U S in particular is just the the understanding of rotations that can occur. People being comfortable getting out of what used to be their spot on the field there, you know, I remember actually way, it's really interesting. 
I remember way back when, when I was playing for Pia and this was right before she was going to pick, I think it was the 2018 and, and we were at a tournament and she put me in and I, I was playing like, we were playing a diamond midfield, if I remember correctly. And I was on the left and, and, and she was very fascinated by, with the idea of just go somewhere else, you know, just go somewhere else. And, and as players, we were like, well, what, what does that even mean? What do you mean go somewhere else? Like, I, I, do you want me to go? I, you don't want me on the back line. We can all agree that's a bad decision, you know? And, and I once just, you know, the ball was on the other side of the field. I was sick of not getting it. And I, I hightailed it to the opposite side of the pitch and ended up getting involved in, in, in a buildup. You know, we had a really, you know, good attacking phase and, and then came back and, and I remember after the game, she's like, that's exactly what I'm talking about, you know? And, and so I think that was like our, my, at least my first um, national team coach that promoted that in college, I had Jerry Smith, who was always about place changing, but it was more like, if you go high, someone else comes low, you, you have the freedom to go there. And it wasn't like go straight on the other side of the field, the way a Griezmann does, the way a Messi does. Right. Mm-hmm. It was, there was more um, structure to it with Pia it was go over there. And, and so anyways, I just think that players are evolving into understanding how, how to pick up space, how to make space on the field, how to create space for themselves and for our teammates. And I think that's the biggest evolution I see. All right. But we can talk about it if, if you want to. <laughs> I mean, okay. So, but bringing up Pia now, this is going to be, she blues cup is the first chance that we're really going to have to get a look at Pia as head coach of Brazil like there have been some friendlies and kind of interest squad scrimmages for Brazil but like this is really kind of the big test for Brazil ahead of the Olympics what are your expectations I I super agree with you I think USA versus Brazil is the most interesting game and and I think probably the most challenging game for the U.S. in this tournament but what are you hoping to see from Brazil and and maybe from Pia against her former team you know I, I'm curious to see how she's evolved as a coach first and foremost, right? Cause we've seen her at the home with the U S I played under her and then she went to Sweden and now Brazil. So I'm really curious to see uh, what she's, how she's evolving, but she's got a very different set of tools in her, in her bag. She's got a whole different set of clubs. Right. And when you, when you're in Brazil, the one thing, what I even just spoke about was she, with us, she wasn't great at structure because we didn't need to have structure. Right. Sweden, flash forward, very structured, mm-hmm. and and were able to obviously uh, upset the U.S. in that time period. So I think the structure that she can, uh, if she can supply that and and get that team to understand how to be solid defensively, to not be as chaotic in their build, not be as individual, and and do and move through the phases. Um, as a unit without taking away the creativity and the individuality that they obviously need to express and should express that that's what I'm interested in seeing. And, and I'm, that's what I'm expecting is that you're going to see just a, a more cohesive unit in Brazil. And I, and I do think it's interesting that they already extended her contract. The challenge will come up. Like you said, is how long has she had with these women to, to be able to uh, impart her vision. Right. And, so she, I actually spoke to her offline and, and she had said, you know, look, COVID was really challenging for us. We, we really didn't get together and, and we, it did set us back, but she feels really positive about some of the players that are playing over in Europe and how that's helping evolve some of those individuals. And, 
super high on, on Rafaela in the back line, uh, one of the center backs. And if you watch the way she plays, I think she's an interesting one um, that, that likes to bring the ball out, obviously been a previous um, attacking player. And then I do think they have interesting players around, you know, I like what she's done with Marta moving her back into a lower role mm-hmm. uh, off the pitch, right? That's where she's going to exist at this point in her career. And I think that's a little bit more difficult for teams to handle because uh, midfielders really don't want to track and they don't want to be responsible defensively. Whereas defenders love that battle. I'm going to stop Marta, right? And that, that 1v1 mentality. So I am, I'm very curious to see what happens, but I think that structure is something that they'll benefit from. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, so let's let's talk about Canada for a little bit because as you said earlier, you know, a lot of big players missing. I definitely agree with the fact that they did not necessarily look at, you know, peak form in CONCACAF qualifiers, though they, you know, CONCACAF qualifiers are also their own kind of particular thing to try to analyze teams as they as they go through them. But one of the things that I think really struck me reading some of the comments from Bev Priestman's media availability is there's still such this talking point in Canada about players being brave. And that was something that she talked a lot about. And it, it it really does. I mean, she was an assistant coach under John Herdman, but that was such a like John Herdman talking point for Canada. And I feel like, sure, like players should be brave, but there's still so many other things that the team could probably sort to figure out that might also benefit <laughs> where they're at ahead of the Olympics. That, that's such a good point. I mean, when I think of Canada... I, I don't think of players that aren't brave, right? That's not the thing that jumps out at me is like, that's, you know, that if we're going to work on weaknesses, that's area number one, we would target. That's just not where I would spend my capital. But, but having said that, you know, brave, brave and challenges, brave in the battle is different from brave on the ball. And, and, you know, my, my guess is that's where she's talking about bravery and, and being able to play out of difficult situations, you know, I, I just think this, the Canada squad, they, they keep, uh, and I, look, this is going to be pinned on their, their walls. Not that they care what I say, but ultimately like this is fuel for their fire. I mean, they've just underperformed. Right. And I think they've underdelivered for so long. We've had expectations for them to continue to continue to progress and to really vie consistently with the U S and that just hasn't happened. So I think this is a, a team that that has really special players. Again, we're not going to necessarily see them all in, and she believes, but like a Jesse Fleming, you know, how is this a how has she gone under the radar this long for Canada or a Haitama? How long have we heard about Haitama being mm-hmm. the next great thing? And just none of that coming to fruition at this point. And look, everyone takes a different path in their development. So I, I'm not at all at the point to write them off and say that they don't have a, a massive future in this game. I think they both can, but we're just not seeing the progression uh, that I think you would expect to see uh, out of individuals. And then as the squad in general and, and, you know, as great and amazing as sync is, you know, has, as her long established role on that team hindered them at all. You know, I think that's something that perhaps, you know, Bev is going to have to deal with. How do you utilize Sinclair? you know, heading into the Olympics that 
that's that's going to be a tough uh, management call for I think for a young coach to come in and, and make. Right. I mean, it it just reminds me to kind of the flip for goalkeepers for the U.S. Women's National Team. I mean, that's kind of always been the the one thing that we always think about the most of like you have such this kind of like dedicated number one in some sort of role. And then you know that you need to eventually flip into a new player. How do you massage that (laughs) transition to as kind of transition for both sides of both the team, the player, you know, everyone involved. So it's not necessarily an easy one, but Canada is, I mean, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch them in this tournament and see if, you know, this is kind of like almost like their approach to how the Challenge Cup was maybe in a way, just where like you get a chance to see players that maybe we haven't seen before that can, you know, get a, get a chance to shine on a brighter stage that they might have gotten otherwise. Yeah, no, that that's a really good point. And, and you're making me think of, of almost in the men's game, you know, how valuable you look at the different competitions that they have, right? And and you've got Champions League and some have Europa League, but then you've got your cup competitions and then you've got your league play. And and a lot of those players that are trying to get into the first team, you know, they they get their experience or they get their opportunities come cup time, you know, in those early games. And and some of these players just aren't experiencing that because we don't maybe have that on the women's side, right? In mm-hmm. the club competition. But then with the national team, there a lot of the coaches, you you go out there to win and they don't go out there to develop, you know, and it's that fine line of keeping their job, keeping the team moving and and progressing individuals as they should be handled, you know, at that level. So I, I'm with you. I think it could be an exciting uh, tournament to be able to see some of the younger players that don't get as much time and maybe players that can take on a bigger role. If you look at like a Nichelle Prince or Dan Rose or uh, the the left wing back, uh, blanking on her name right now. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's probably uh, beyond me at nine o'clock at night when we're recording this right now. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, it'll come to me. But you know, cer- certain players that uh, can make a, I think, make a move in this tournament and, and try try to stick a claim on a spot. Right. All right, so one more team for this competition. It is a team that the U.S. Women's National Team has only played three times over the span of its career. Last time U.S. played Argentina, it was 2014. Alyssa Nair actually got her debut, which was a fun little uh, trivia point on her media availability the other week. But, I mean, is there maybe some advantage for the U.S. to play kind of this relatively unknown team? Like, you know, you can watch what Argentina did in the 2019 World Cup, but, like, this is a team that they haven't really gotten a lot of experience for. And is that helpful ahead of a major tournament? Yeah, I, I think that's, again, my great question, great point, because, you know, we even saw it a little bit with Colombia when they went into that match, as much as you, as much scouting as you could do, you still couldn't scout all those players. You didn't know all those players or, or the information was very limited. And, and I think it's actually a massive asset for the U S to have that because when the players go into a game right now, they're they're dealt a you know a very important card of here's what to expect, here's what we expect, here's what the players in your position likely do, and so they have a good understanding of what they're about to face. But there are going to be times in the Olympic Games that you're going to roll out there and something is not going to go as expected, and so it is really good for these players to, as much as you know the the, the staff will try to prepare them. 
to maybe be faced with something that they weren't ready for and, and to get out there and to try to, to solve things without the coach calling in it from the sideline, to be able to read and understand what is happening in real time and to shift and to get everyone on the same page without, you know, going into the locker room and at halftime and, and then understanding what is about to occur. So I think you're right on that. Listen, if, it, the one of the big advantages of playing in Argentina, while it might not be the most competitive match, it's and maybe it will be. Don't you know? You never know. Look what they were able to do, um, like you said, in the World Cup. It, but but if it's if the wrinkle that they throw at the U.S. is the unknown, that's an asset, and that's going to make the players think and become better footballers. I think ultimately, and perhaps look, maybe when we're talking about how is Laco evaluating some of these players. Perhaps for some of them, it's, it's a, are they understanding the game? Can they think in real time? Can they problem solve? And maybe that is, you know, something that he looks to, to learn from, from specific individuals. Right. Okay. So I think one big last one, but is there a player that you think people should be watching for the U.S. Women's National Team uh, throughout this tournament that is not necessarily even maybe on the bubble, but one that you think we're going to benefit from watching over a more consistent three games in kind of a more tournament setting. Meaning we're going to, we're going to understand their form or. I think probably form. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, I think you've got to go with, there's a few. Do I have to nail? You don't have to, you can pick whatever, however many. Uh, I, I think that you, Carly Lloyd is a big one. You know, I think any of the, if Alex Morgan, I'm not sure how fit she's going to be, if she's going to get minutes, but I think any of those players that, that are on that bubble of, you know, are they going to be in form and fit and ready for the Olympics or are they not, you know, those are the ones that you're talking about. So I think that's got to be the older players with a Lloyd with even a, a Rapino, which I, I assume she's in great form. And, and I think the work that Lloyd has done in Vlaco's system um, is very valuable. And I think he values it. So even if it's not on the score sheet, I think, I think there is value to what she's doing as that false nine and freeing up other players around her. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about evaluation, it might not just be in the, in the, you know, goals and assists category. And then I think you've got to look at two younger players like Kat Macario and, uh, Sophia Smith, right. And see what those two players can bring, because I, I would put those two names as, as someone that Vlaco likely has to to bring into the fold if they're close to to getting into that 18. I think he I think you gamble on them. I think you give them experience um, just to prepare them for the World Cup. But I don't even think Macario is going to be close. I think she's going to be in. OK, I, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say I had Macario and kind of like expectations. And I think, you know, before her debut, right, like as everyone's waiting, everyone's like, well, Okay, like let's maybe almost like lower our expectations for her just so that way we're not like overhyping. And now I think post Columbia, everyone's like, oh no, we didn't do enough hyping. <laughs> we actually yeah, called right. that wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> but I also think we kind of scarred ourselves a little bit with Pew, right? And she just took off and it, she was going to be the next great thing. And then she's really stalled in her development and is at a point right now where, you know, she might be one of those first names that, that, because cut down from that 23 to 18 unless she gets can get healthy and, and start to show what she did before right yeah I mean I think with Pew the the exciting thing is finding another new NWSL home seeing what that does for her development right like I mean the nice thing with Vlaco is that we know for a fact that you can look at NWSL stuff and know that that is data that he is considering we might not know how yeah. highly it ranks but we know that he is watching 
Yeah, no, you're right on. And, and he sees it again, differently than we even see it. So I, I think those are massive data points for him. And of course, NWSL, it's a, it was his birthplace really. So ton of respect there. And, and that's an asset for the, I think for, for us as, you know, Americans that we know that he'll consider the whole pool of players. Look what he's doing with Christy Mewis. Right. And, and some way back when I'm not going to say when, but that player like that might not have made it into camp. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the exciting thing, but also even, you know, when I asked him about the goalkeeping pool and everyone always kind of thinks of the goalkeeping pool as like three to four players. And he was like, Oh no, let me list you 10. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Again, Blanco, you are, you are far ahead of me in the thought process. Okay. Yes. Good reminder. Yes. And and by the way, this is his day job. All right. So he better be ahead of us. Otherwise we're in serious. (laughs) We have serious issues and we can forget about 2023. (laughs) All right. Uh, any, any other thoughts before we, we call it on this? I I feel like we've, we've done a pretty good job of walking through the tournament, but anything else? I, I, I want Meg, I want your pick who comes first and third, fourth. That's what I want. Who, I mean, I feel like it's going to be us, Brazil, Canada, Argentina. Like, I I just feel like there's probably not going to be a huge amount of surprises, but I think if there's a team that could upset the U S like my money's on Brazil, but also, I mean, I feel like, you know, about this me, I am so extremely high on Dabinia as a player. So (laughs) me too. She was my number one player to watch in the tournament. I I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for that, but by far. I mean, we were both at the 2019 NWSL championship where she was MVP of the championship. Like, and 2018 would have been, but was hurt in the semi, remember? Mm-hmm. And so show up and that, that, that game probably ends differently if Dabinia's in, yep. in 2018. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're reminiscing. We're old. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> well, you know, uh, as I joke today, today is actually my birthday. And I was like, if I was on the U.S. <laughs> Women's National Team roster, Happy Flacco birthday. would be kicking me off for how old I am. <laughs> Happy birthday <laughs> to you, May. All right. Well, yeah. we will end it there since I <laughs> struggle with my birthday. So thank you, Allie, for joining us. I'm sure we will all be watching uh, and looking forward to your analysis. It is one of my favorite things about watching the women's national team games is when I get to hear you break them down because I'm like, oh, yeah, I should steal that later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't. It's, it's risky. Meg, I'm telling you. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Cheers. It was great. All right. So that was Allie Wagner, thankfully, coming on to preview She Leaves Cup for you. Hopefully you find that helpful. Hopefully it helps you watch the games and maybe a slightly different mindset. Uh, But, you know, again, we are all just out here trying to put together Vlako Andonovsky's little puzzle of a roster and hoping that we keep up with him. All right. So we will be back tomorrow. We've got a great episode on the way in your feeds as always. So make sure if you don't already subscribe that you subscribe, rate, review, all the usual stuff I tend to say at the end of episodes. But because this is a bonus, I'm going to skip it and save it for tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. Our producer is Michael Zimmerman. I'm Meg Linehan at The Athletic.